Okay, well, welcome to Sunday School. If you're here for the first time, uh, a doubly warm welcome. Pretty, pretty warm welcome. It's about as warm as it gets in here. Um, we are finishing off a little mini two-week series, thinking about what it means that Jesus descended to the dead. If you say the Apostles' Creed or the Athanasian Creed, uh, you'll, you'll say that line week by week. Jesus was crucified, died and was buried, and then he descended to the dead. Um, last week we thought a little bit about literally what happened, what does it mean in that sense. And this week we're going to think about why. So just to recap, um, you should be able to see a sheet hopefully. What did we see last week? Well we saw that we're not meant to think that Jesus went to hell for three days, as in the place of torment. We're not meant to think that Jesus died and continued, <coughs> excuse me, I'm really struggling to say, um, continued to suffer in hell <coughs> right the way through to his resurrection. That is not the case. Why? Well, because we know his last words were, it is finished. All the atoning work, all the paying for sin work was done with Jesus' last breath. We also know he said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise, not torment. He didn't say, I will see you in paradise, but first I've got to go to torment. Today, Friday, the day of his death, I'll see you in paradise. So whatever this descent to the dead means, it doesn't mean going to hell for three days. Neither um, does it mean that on the cross, Jesus suffered God's wrath at sin. Now that is true, on the cross, Jesus did suffer God's wrath at sin. And that's how Calvin actually explains this line, he descended to the dead. And the Heidelberg Catechism, likewise, has that. They explain it as bearing, um, bearing hell on the cross. Now, those are true statements. They're just not what descending to the dead is about, either in the creed or in scripture. And partly, if you think about the creed, it'd be very odd, wouldn't it? Jesus was crucified, died, was buried. To then have another line about what was going on on the cross, would totally out of sync. And also, it's not what anyone ever thought it meant until... Um, Calvin started panicking about Roman Catholics. Another story. So what does it mean? What does it mean? When we say Jesus descended to the dead, we're affirming he really died and that his body and soul were torn apart. So his body is buried. Crucified, died, was buried. But then he, and by he now we're talking about Jesus in his, his human soul, he goes to the place of the dead. Put the little same little diagram I used last week, stolen from a guy called Matthew Emerson. Um, the, the place of the dead, we looked at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where you remember the, the beggar, Lazarus, and the rich man who's unnamed. They die. Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom, it's called, and um, the rich man who's you know, been so harsh to him is in torment. But they're both able to talk to each other. So it seems the kind of understanding of, of where you go when you die was that uh, within this general place called Hades, or the place of the dead, there was the kind of the, the, the bit where the righteous people went, the believers went, sometimes called Abraham's bosom, paradise, that sort of thing. Um, and also the place where the unbelievers went, uh, the place of the unrighteous dead, and then separately there's a place for the fallen angels, but that needn't bother us for now. So Jesus in his human soul goes down goes down to the place of the righteous dead. And this week I want to think, think about why. Um, but I want to pause because we didn't have much time for questions last week. Does anyone want to ask questions just on the sort of 
the literal what happened before we go on to kind of why, what's going on. Okay. Say again, sorry? In his, uh, Divine nature? Yeah. Uh, sorry, I don't quite understand. Could, I think God was already. Yeah, I don't think he really. So, could, could you, do you mean could Jesus have meant um, today I'll see you in paradise? I can see God. Um, and therefore, you were saying that therefore maybe he did go to hell for three days? Uh, yeah. Not convinced, basically. <laughs> um, I don't think so. So, first of all, um, God, I mean, God, God is everywhere in that sense, so I don't think, I think he's speaking as a man. As you go all the way through the Gospels, although he's always God, I will see you in paradise. If he was speaking as God, it's a bit of a non-statement. I mean, obviously I'm going to see you in paradise, I'm also going to see you in hell, because God is ruling hell as well. God's as much in hell as he is in heaven. So, because God is there punishing in hell and blessing in heaven. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's... I think it would make much sense if he was just speaking as God. But also, I don't think he ever just speaks as God in the Gospels. He's a man, Christ Jesus. And then you've got to deal with all these verses we looked at last week about my soul goes to Hades. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't think you can sort of tease the two apart and say there's a God bit that does this and a human bit that does that. Um, and it, ha- happy, happy with the kind of summary of last week? Can you please go over the distinction between the place of the righteous dead and heaven? Because it's a weird detail to me in the Apostles' Creed that he descends to the dead and ascends to heaven. Mm. The model that you've shown here on the paper, does that no longer apply if heaven supersedes it? What what a great question that you just (laughs) might have to hang on to. Um, Yeah, so um, I'll I'll say one thing for now, but then hopefully we'll cover that as things go on. the Bible often uses kind of geographical terminology like going down to, you know, down to Hades. And even the, you know, the, um, the believers in the Old Testament will talk about going down to Hades or down to Sheol, down. Um, doesn't mean we're meant to literally think it's down there somewhere under our feet. But the kind of, the imagery is of going down to the place of the dead. But you're right, something does seem to change. So we'll come back to that. Um, let's press on. So, when we say the creed, the Apostles' Creed, he descended to the dead, to be strictly accurate, obviously, it doesn't give any explanation of what, why or what happens. But that's true for most of the creed, isn't it? It, doesn't exp- it, it, it just says he, he was crucified. It doesn't say he was crucified, bearing the penalty for our sins. It just says he was buried. It just says he rose again. It doesn't give kind of theological explanations. So, in this sense, we're going beyond the creed when we try and ask why. But obviously, when they wrote it, they were interested in why. They weren't just summarising facts. Um, what that means is, though, you wouldn't have to agree with everything I'm going to say today to still be happy to say he descended the dead. You could affirm the fact, even if you disagree on some of the um, things it might mean. And actually, what I'm going to do is split, split the rest of our time together into kind of the major things that I think Scripture teaches, and then the minor things. So the major things have more weight. The minor things are referenced perhaps in fewer places. Maybe it's just one reference here or there. And so, just like anything in the Bible, if something's taught in lots of places, it's going to likely be more significant, more important than something taught in just one or two places. Okay, so it matters more. So we'll split it like that. Um, so why didn't Jesus 
just rise again straight away or three hours later? What's, what's going on between his death and resurrection? What if you ever, ever asked that? You know, what was he doing between the, the death and resurrection? Was he just hanging around, just waiting? Was he suffering, resting, doing nothing? Let's have a look. Um, some major implications. What, what is this belief that Jesus descended to the dead tell us? Firstly, it, it tells us human beings of both soul and body. Now, that might seem blindingly obvious to you. If so, great. Um, that's good. You're obviously well taught. But it hasn't always seemed blindingly obvious to all Christians. Um, if Jesus is buried, body buried, and yet his soul goes to Hades... So the verse right at the top of the sheet, Acts 2, 27, you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Then clearly there's a difference between his body and his soul. Um, he's a, a duality, if you like, or human beings are a duality. Um, now, there are all sorts of complicated debates about how that works. How do our body and soul interact? Um, so we probably shouldn't think, for example, that, that our soul is like, our soul to our body is like, um, you know, like when you get in your car and drive it, you're a kind of living thing and the car is just a mechanical thing being you know, moved around by the, the living thing, you. Um, it's not that your soul is a living thing and your body is just a shell, as if they're totally distinct and unrelated. Um, what, what would be, it's going to be a genuine question, so question with, you can answer please. Um, what in the Bible might show that how you your body and your soul are kind of woven together and how you treat one affects the other. Do you think of anything in, in, in scripture that might teach you that how you the body and soul are so woven together that what you do to one affects the other? Fasting. Fasting. Go on, thank you. Um, in that um, it was a I hadn't thought about that one. That's great. Good example. Absolutely. Yeah. So, one Corinthians six. You go sleeping around with prostitutes or whatever. Don't think it's just doing something to your body and not your soul. Although it's a physical act, that the very physical act has an effect on you. And it's the same. We know that, don't we? That all the super clever. Um, brain studies nowadays we know that uh, you watch endless pornography or whatever um, it, it does stuff to your brain okay, you're just looking at it but it, it kind of rewires the pathways in your brain and I'm not clever enough to explain it but you know it does something to you physical, physically and yet obviously it's a spiritual issue as well yeah. and drunkenness would be similar so do not get <coughs> drunk but be full of the spirit what, when you get drunk it, it's only a very physical thing isn't it putting alcohol into your body but it has an effect on you spiritually, leads you into sin. Sorry, Anastasia. Um, communion. Very good. Communion. Go on. Well, you take something that's spiritual, it represents spiritual, and actually does something spiritual. Yeah, brilliant. Communion. Okay, when you take the Lord's Supper, you're just eating what is just bread and drinking what is just wine, and yet, when you receive them by faith, by the, 
mysterious power of God. Paul says that you are participating in Christ or communing with Christ, to use the old language. You can say the same about, frankly, anything like a sermon. What you're actually, <clears throat> when Nick preaches later, at, you know, he will blow air out of his mouth and it'll, you know, it'll wobble across the room and it'll eventually it will hit your eardrum, uh, your eardrum. Okay, it's all very physical. A scientist could explain it. And yet it will, God willing, do you spiritual good. Okay, so we don't, all to say, we don't pull apart soul and bodies if they're just totally connected, like a ghost in the machine kind of thing. And yet, clearly they are separable. You are not your body and you're not just your soul um, either. So the destruction of the body is not the destruction of the person. Again, you might be totally on board with that already, in which case, great, but plenty of Christians aren't. Um, it means too, by extension, Jesus obviously had a human soul and not just a body. When he descends to the dead, he is in Hades or Sheol or the realm of the dead, whatever you want to call it. Um, and it's, it's not talking about Jesus as God there because God is everywhere. Um, it's clearly talking about Jesus in his human nature, in his human soul. So Jesus' body, you can say on Saturday, where you say, where is Jesus? You can say he's in the tomb, and that's true. And, and the, the Bible, interestingly, I think it's John's Gospel. I, I should have looked this up, I didn't. Um, I think it's John's Gospel. It doesn't talk about, when it talks about the body of Jesus, it doesn't talk about they buried it. They talk about burying him. Okay, it's still him. So again, the body isn't just this, I don't know, shell that's been cast off. He is buried, but also he, this time talking about his soul, is in the place of the dead, doing something which we'll come to in a moment. So Jesus has a human body and a human soul. And likely, the line, part of the reason for putting that line in the creed, he descended the dead, was to emphasise that, because there were Christians who were teaching that when God became man, the Son of God became man, what happened was that God the Son, the second verse of the Trinity took to himself um, a human body but he God took the place where our human soul or mind would be it's called Apollinarianism early church heresy so some, some taught that okay if you want to understand how God became man it's, it's pretty easy really um, God comes down and essentially kind of possesses a human body but the human body doesn't have its own mind or soul um, what's, what's the problem with that? What's the problem? If Jesus doesn't have a real human soul and mind. Absolutely that. You, the, you know, almost the main problem with us is our souls. Um, you know, sin comes from within, is it? My problem is not so much my body, um, but my, my soul, you know, with its seat of desires and loving and faith and all the rest of it. Or that's where all my problems are. So if Jesus isn't really human at the level of the soul, then he can't represent us. And he can't live the life that we should have lived. And thankfully, the gospel goes soul deep. It's not that Jesus just doesn't murder and commit adultery. He also loves God, heart, soul, mind and strength in a way that you and I never do. And he does so as a man. We need him to do that as a man. So very important, Jesus has a human soul. By the way, I'm using soul and spirit and mind pretty much interchangeably. Okay, they're more or less the same thing. So Jesus has a real human mind. He's got two minds, a human one and a divine one. A real human soul, whatever. Um, let me do a couple more things and then we'll do some discussion um, what, what other sort of things can we draw from this idea that Jesus descended for death clearly it teaches that human beings continue to exist consciously after death 
Now, again, depending on your church background, this is either very familiar to you or a surprise. So, remember at CU, actually, when I was a student, um, someone in a kind of Grilla Christian event, Christian, defending the idea that when you die as a Christian, you basically, as it were, go to sleep, and the next thing you know, it'll be the day of Jesus' return. Sometimes called soul sleep, and it's called sorts of names. But anyway... Um, what they weren't believing was that in between your, your death as a Christian and Christ returning, there was a kind of conscious existence for Christians. But pretty obviously there is. Jesus existed even when his body was in the ground. His soul went to this, um, the place of the dead, and he's alive, conscious. Of course, you can prove that from other places like Revelation, where the souls before the altar are crying out, how long till you return, all the rest of it as well. But it shows that human beings continue to exist consciously after death. And then just two, two more pastoral ones to, to finish off these kind of major things. Um, it shows that Jesus has been dead. And by that, I mean something slightly different than he died. So he crucified, died and was buried. We've already affirmed he died. But incredibly, we're affirming that God, who is immortal, the immortal God, has been dead. He was dead for, for three days. The, the, the grave is a place of terror for most people. Okay, and even for many Christians, although we know we shouldn't, many of us still are, are scared of death. But the idea that Jesus has been right down, and not just experienced a moment of dying, but also that whole um, period of, sort of being dead before rising again, um, shows us that, that he has gone all the way ahead of us, been there first. So I put a quote down there from... Um, Dutch American guy, his burial did not merely serve to prove that Jesus was really dead, but also to remove the terrors of the grave for the redeemed and sanctify the grave for them. And to tie that into the next one, he's conquered death. Jesus has been dead, but he's been dead not as a victim, but as a, uh, as a victor, as a conqueror. So who descended to the dead? Well, God did. He did so as man. Okay, so the descent is in his human nature, because as we keep saying, in his divine nature, he's just everywhere. You know, doesn't go anywhere, nothing changes. But as man, God <laughs> descended to the dead. And so, of course, death couldn't keep a grip of him. Um, think about it. Jesus as a man, a real man, just like you, with a body and a soul. They are ripped apart. Without the gospel, without Jesus, if your body and soul were ripped apart, that would be it. There's no way of putting them back together again. But for Jesus, his body and soul are ripped apart, body buried, soul to Hades. But they're both still attached, to use Greek language, to the Son of God, to his divine nature. So separate from each other, but not separate from the person who is the Son of God. So one old illustration of this talks about a knight riding into battle, um, you know, on a horse. And the knight pulls his sword from the scabbard. So the sword and the scabbard are apart... They're separate one from another, but they're not separate from the person, the knight who's using them to, to fight. And it's that kind of image. Although Jesus was in Hades, his soul was in Hades, it was the soul of the Son of God. And so, of course, death couldn't uh, keep a hold of him. What's the pastoral implication? Well, for us, when you become a Christian, you're, you're united to Christ. The most common description of a Christian in the New Testament is someone who's in Christ or united to Christ. 
So I think I'll put on your sheets. Question for the, the Shorter Catechism. The souls of believers at their death are made perfect in holiness and immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, rest in the grave till the resurrection. So your body and soul one day, presuming you die, will be pulled apart. Your soul, because you are connected to Christ, will go to, to be with him. Your body is also still connected to him. Because you are connected to him, it's you. But your body's not this separate thing. You are still connected to him. And so that's the, the, the absolute guarantee of your resurrection. Because Christ is not going to leave your body and soul torn apart. Now, you'll have to wait more than three days. He only had three days to wait. But your union with Christ is the guarantee that he, is, that he will stitch together body and soul. And one, one little text on this before you do some discussion. Just have a look at Numbers 10. Make this what you will. Um, this is not my uh, insight, but just, just one of the pictures that people have used. So Numbers 10, we're on the journeying, okay? The journeying in the desert. And remember the Ark of the Covenant, which is the, the presence of God on earth. So it's a little picture of the incarnation, a picture of Jesus. God come down, but just this Ark. Um, Numbers 10.33, Israel, they set out from the Mount of the Lord for three days' journey. And the Ark of the Covenant went before them for three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. See what happens? The Ark of the Covenant goes three days ahead to find a resting place. It goes through the wilderness, and it's, as it were, God finds the resting place, and then the rest of the people catch up. And so just in, sort of, in terms of a picture, a shadowy picture of what Jesus is doing over those three days, it's one of the verses the early church went to. That, that, that the Son of God comes down, he passes through the, you know, the wilderness of death for three days in order to find a resting place, ultimately in paradise, which is what we're going to come to, um, for the church who will follow after. God first, people follow three days after. Okay, there are some sort of big picture things. Um, uh, questions at this stage? I know we still answered yours, Andy, so... Yeah, Chris. Yeah. Well, it. Um, yeah, well, obviously the first thing you want to decide is whether it's true or not, and if it's true, then you want to hold to it. And sometimes it takes a while to work out what the implications are. But um, I think the. I mean, it's, it's basically just a, a, a blessing. So, um, think about Paul's language. You know, I just. I desire to be depart to be with Christ, which is better by far. Um, uh, it, 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 I'm, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think of it from the other point of view, as in if you believed in soul sleep. Um, I suppose you just argue that. Well, as far as you know, that's the next thing that's going to happen. Um, so, yeah, don't know. I'm not, I've never tried. I've never tried debating with a soul sleep advocate. So I'm not, not too sure. But. Um, yeah, I think it's just the blessing that actually, you, yeah, you will go straight away to, to be with Christ, which is better by far. Yeah, but I've not really thought about that enough. Go on. We Before. Uh, yes, we're going to come to that as well. Yeah. Interesting, Chris. Not, 
find a soul sleep person and have a debate with them. I like to say, like, you know, in trances, I don't want to go to bed. Because you know when you're in bed, you're sort of missing out, aren't you? And uh, it's this idea of you're not going to nothing. We've literally, like, today, in, in five minutes' time, as you know, it's your heart, you read your final breaths, and you're literally about to be with an order to enjoy it. Um, not in a way that we enjoy it, but in the same way you creation, like we enjoy it. It's really exciting. It's in your mind, you're like, okay, we've got a couple of millennia together. I mean, you know, it's, but it's just, I think it is less exciting. So. Um, just, just let's stop and think about death, because big, obviously loads of this is about death. Two, two questions down there. What, what's a healthy, rounded Christianity to death? You don't have to use those verses, but I've just put some down as suggestions. And if you get, if you get to it, burial or cremation. Um, Go for it. Round tables. Let, let me say a couple of things on this and then do some of the, do some of the other things that might come out of the, um, the descent. I'm very basically, I'll ask you to death. Uh, I, it's really easy to fall off the horse either side. Isn't it? I, either we're still totally terrified by it, but we don't need to be. Or we, we, we've got no sympathy whatsoever for Christians who mourn. You know, sometimes, you know, you know your, your grand dies and don't worry, she's gone to heaven as if you should perk up. But no, Jesus, Jesus cries, 1 Thessalonians, I do not want you to mourn um, as those without hope. He doesn't say, I don't want you to mourn. So it's still totally legit to mourn. You shouldn't feel guilty if you're mourning and upset um, when someone dies. Um, but obviously, death is now a conquered enemy. So you, you, want, you want to hold both those. Jesus weeps at Lazarus' tomb, even though he's about to raise him, literally a minute later. So you don't want to, don't want to um, yeah, fall off the horse either side, as it were. Just, just on burial cremation, this just never comes up, so I thought oh, I'll, I'll put it in here. Um, first thing to say, obviously God can raise anybody from the dead. So I, I, you know, I know there are relatives of my family who died in various wars, who were never buried because, you know, destroyed totally able to be raped. God can do anything. Okay, so please, I, I don't want to be pastorally insensitive. Um, of course, someone might be destroyed at sea or blown up in a bomb or I don't know, or burnt. It's not a problem. It's not an object. object. It's not a... Uh, can't find the word. It's, it's, it's not going to stop God raising them from the dead. Having said which, there is a reason why Jews and Christians bury bodies and always have done, whereas Vikings and various Eastern religions burn bodies. And that is because they have a high view of, the, of the, the body. The body will be raised from the dead. And the body is still you. So again, they bury him, they didn't bury it, the kind of detritus left over. Um, so that, that's why graveyards are full of bodies. And that's why the vast, vast, vast way of, well, until very recently, Christian churches buried, um, didn't, do, didn't do cremation. I understand, please don't mishear that. If your granny was cremated or something, that's really not a problem to God. But just in terms of honouring the body, I do think there's something, there's something in that. Um, let, let, a couple of minor things to, to, to finish on because various questions have touched on them already. Um, these are things that, the stuff we looked at so far, I think pretty much you, you've got to believe. Okay, so Jesus had a soul and body, conscious after death, all that sort of stuff. These are things that I, I think are true. And again, not because I've come up with them. These are things the church has taught down the years. But they rely on far fewer texts. So... You know, they are more debatable. Minor doesn't mean untrue, otherwise I wouldn't try and teach them, but they're just less sort of 
strongly attested across scripture. Um, three things very quickly. What, what are the... Oh, childhood things. What was Jesus doing? Um, what, 1 Peter 3 um, talks about Jesus preaching. And the word is not the evangelising word. You're telling people the gospel, say, but announcing victory. Um, we've not got time to go into the details of that passage again. But if it is talking about Jesus' descent to the dead, then the idea is that Jesus goes to the, to the realm of the dead. And remember, although he's in the bit which is the righteous dead, you know, Abraham and Samuel and Hannah and whatever are there, you can communicate with the unrighteous dead. And he announces his victory, heralds his victory. And so, weirdly, the, the descent, as it were, is the start... Um, of his kind of upward turn it's the, it's the start of the whole raising again and ascending and all the rest of it it's the beginning of the triumph in other words um, Philippians 2 tells us that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth there are the three zones again heaven, earth, under the earth and it, it, it just sort of matches doesn't it so Jesus goes to the place of the dead and proclaims his death there to those under the earth then he rises again and proclaims it on earth you know, he comes back and proclaims it to the disciples and the 500 and all the rest of it and then he ascends to heaven um, and yes uh, okay yeah he ascends to heaven holy horses Andy holy horses um, secondly Jesus robbed death of his keys Revelation 1 17 and 18 fear not I'm the first and the last the living one I hide and behold I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades death there seems to be a person almost like a personified character. I don't know if there really is a savage angel of death or something, I don't know. But in Revelation, death seems to be a person. Death later is thrown into the lake of hell, uh, lake of fire, which is the final hell. And it, it, it's, as it were, Jesus went down and robbed death of his keys. Keys open and shut, don't they? Jesus stole the keys off the jail. He is now in charge of every realm. He, the human being, the true king. Um, the true Adam. Remember, God always wanted to rule through a human king. Adam was meant to have total dominion under God. And now we've got a human king who is going to be lord of everything. Keys to everywhere. Not just earth, but eventually heaven and under the earth as well. And then the, uh, Ephesians 4, we looked at last week. Um, if early art, loads of Christian art, in fact not just early, right into sort of middle ages, pictures the descent as Jesus sort of pulling Adam and Eve out of the grave um, and lifting them up. And this is the idea. So finally, we've got to kind of Andy's question. It, it's, what they were teaching, it's not that Jesus somehow emptied hell as if everyone goes to heaven, but rather when he descends to the place of the dead, remember he goes to the place of the righteous dead. Um, Ephesians 4 talks about him uh, then ascending, leading captives in his train. The idea being that he takes with him all the kind of all those who believed and trusted that they've been waiting for the Messiah, Moses and Aaron and everybody else, uh, and takes them to what basically from then on gets called heaven. So for most of the New Testament, um, we talk about going up. Remember, it's been down so far. All the Old Testament saints talk about going down, but then it seems to be going up um, to the heavenly realms or heaven or whatever. Um, so again, although I'm not sure we're meant to be literally believing that there was a place down there and it's now up there, it's just this idea that because Christ has come 
The Messiah has now come, taken on flesh. He has transformed the experience of all those who die. So now when you die, you go into the presence of the, the Messiah, the Saviour, which obviously wasn't true beforehand because he hadn't come yet. There was no Messiah. There was no lamb on the throne because he hadn't arrived yet. Um, and so in that sense, there is a transition for all those who came before. They weren't in suffering. They weren't in torment. It's not, no, no sort of funny ideas of purgatory or anything like that for the Catholic Church. But the, the place where they were was not the place where um, the Messiah dwelt because the Messiah hadn't yet arrived. Um, what, what, you know, what's the point of all these? Well, again, to some degree, you can look at those different passages, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 3, if you come to a different interpretation of it, that's fine. Um, it doesn't destroy the idea of Jesus descending the dead. It might just change what you think he was doing when he was there. But what I think they do is they, they're just another angle on the gospel. So you can do the very legal thing. Jesus on the cross tore up the record of death against us. That's true. You can do the on the cross um, anger was poured out on him. That's true. You can do he rose again, burst out of the grave. That's true. But this, is a, this whole story of the descent is it's just another way of telling the story. Jesus came to rescue us the, the, the jaws of death would have taken us and instead he came down 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 not just from heaven to earth not just to the manger but to the cross not just the cross but to the grave not just to the grave but to the to Hades itself the place of the dead and there he robbed death of his keys he defeated death and Hades uh, and preached his victory to everybody under the earth on the earth and above it and then rose and eventually ascended on high so it's almost like a it is like a warrior story it's just another way of telling the, the gospel story because we need all the ways we can, we can get. Uh, real gallop at the end. Let, let's, let's finish with... Uh, with if, you, if, you, if you forget everything else, I love this little paragraph. And I forgot... This is not me. I can't remember who it is, sorry. I think it's someone called Charles Hill, but I might be wrong. Here's a summary. Christ descended into Hades so you and I would not have to. Christ descended to Hades so that we might ascend to heaven. Christ entered the realm of the dead, the realm of the strong enemy, and came away with his keys. The keys of death and Hades are now in our Saviour's hands, and God his Father has exalted him to his right hand and given him another key, the key of David, the key to the heavenly Jerusalem. He opens and no one will shut, he shuts and no one will open. And praise to him, as the hymn says, for he hath opened the heavenly door, and man is blessed forevermore. There's a story of Christ's descent before its ascent. That little hymn. What's that hymn? It's a carol, isn't it? What's that carol? Oh, you do. We all sang, we literally all sang this about a month ago. What's that? What is the carol? He's quoting. He hath opened the hymn. Come on, what's that carol? What's that carol? You know that carol? Good Christian men rejoice. There we go. Good Christian men rejoice. Good Christian men rejoice. He hath opened the heavenly door. Good, that'll be on the recording. If you want to listen later. That, that's what's going on in the descent. That's what we confess in the Apostles' Creed, Athanasian Creed. Um, it is scriptural uh, and it is good news. Uh, you may have all sorts of questions. Um, we've got rushed through the last bit, but let me pray. You can just grab me if you want to ask. Lord Jesus, we know we will die. And we praise you that you've conquered death and Hades. And we pray so much in your mercy you would pour your spirit on us in order that we might trust uh, that you have the keys and that in entrusting ourselves to you, body and soul, uh, we are totally safe. We thank you that you were willing to come down, although you deserved it uh, not. You were willing to come down 
not just to live among us, not even just to die, but to descend to death, to be dead in order that we might live. Fill us with joy, uh, we pray, and fill us with certainty of hope. For we ask in your own name. Amen.